Now, I need you to do me a favor. Um, I want you to turn to the person next to you and just say, you need some joy. Just tell them that. And, and do you know why I knew that you needed to say to them? I walked up here and that, that little bumper teaser video was going on and it looked like everybody had just taken a bite out of a sour lemon. I mean, you were just sitting here looking like you all need some joy. In fact, turn to the person next to you and said, you need a lot of joy. If you're just now joining us, maybe this is your first week to come in a few weeks. We began a brand new series at the beginning of the summer called Whatever. And the series Whatever is really taken from the book of Philippians, which we find in the New Testament. And it is a book, but really a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. And he was teaching and leading them how to find joy. You see, the church of Philippi was a group of people that Paul was just great friends with. He had spent a long time with them several years earlier, helped them find and found their church and start their church. And so he had stepped away, gone to some other towns to do some mission work, but he had recognized and realized in their life that as they journeyed in the Christian life, they were losing their joy. And so as we look at this letter to the Philippi, to the Philippians, and really we could say to the church of South Suburban, Paul is helping them and us rediscover our joy. And we've looked at things the last few weeks like finding joy in our attitude. We've looked at finding joy in our circumstances. We've looked at finding joy in our relationships. And today we're going to take it and Paul's going to help us to find joy in one more area. But before we get to that area, I need to kind of warn you about the passage that we're going to look at today. See, we're looking and we're walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And Paul gets to a couple of verses that has troubled me my whole life. It's almost like if Paul wrote the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians to Keith, I'm reading the letter and I'm finding joy in my circumstances. I'm doing better finding joy in my relationships. But I get to this little phrase that he puts in there in a couple of verses and I'm like, wah, wah, wah. Paul just takes away all my joy. Because the two verses are so just kind of troublesome as I read them. And as I've talked to people, many, many people feel the same way. In fact, if you're here today and maybe you're kind of kicking the tires to following Jesus, you don't even have a relationship with Jesus, you may look at this verse today going, that's the reason I'm checking out. That's the reason I won't be back next week. Because if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I, I, don't, don't sign me up for that because I can't do it. For many people I've discovered that have followed Jesus for a long time in their lives, they get to this verse and it is so troublesome. And rather than digging in deeper, to understand it they just read over real quick because they just can't deal with it it just it creates tension inside your your spiritual life and so what I want to do today before we get to the area that we're going to look at finding joy in our life I want us to look more specifically and kind of narrow in and focus in on these two verses and here's what we're going to discover that Paul was not trying to erode our joy when he wrote these two verses he was really trying to help us find it more fully and it's not until we understand these two verses the way Paul meant for us to understand that we will really discover and enjoy and engage in that joy that he wants us to. And so the two verses we're going to be looking at today is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. We'll have it up here on the screen. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote as he's writing this letter to the church of Philippi, but I also believe the church of South Sub. He goes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And here's the phrase. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He said, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
And that phrase in there, to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, has caused more spiritual consternation amongst more Christians than any verse I know about. Because we read words in there like fear and trembling, like, well, what, what kind of God would that be that we have to approach him with fear and trembling? And we look in their words like, work out, and you're thinking, you mean i got to work for my salvation? And so it just causes this consternation. And so allow me for just a few minutes, let me break this little phrase down for us. And I want us to find the joy that Paul was wanting to find, wanting us to find through this verse. And so the first word I just want to point to you there is continue. Okay? He writes that word in there, continue. It is a big piece of what he's trying to say. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's, here's just one of the principles about salvation that Paul is trying to get across. And a salvation is not a passive act for God. Salvation is not a passive act for God. Unfortunately, some people look at salvation as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, Jesus, if I pray and ask you in my heart and be my Lord and Savior, I'm done with it and I won't go to hell and it's my get-out-of-jail-free card. And once they do that, they kind of follow Jesus to the side going, I'm going to live my life the way I want to and I still could do how I want to, when I want to, and with whoever I want to. But Jesus, you got me out of hell. That's what I need you for. Now sit over here until I need you for something, Jesus. But when God created salvation through his son Jesus, it was never meant to be a passive act. That's the reason Paul says, continue. Now, to help you understand this the best, I need to give you a very short, simple, theological lesson here. And I want to teach you three words. You might have heard these words before. They're big words, okay? Don't go out of here trying to use these words because you'll probably even mispronounce them. Just go out of here going, wow, my preacher's so smart. He taught me three really big theological words. That's the only way you need to use them. But here's the three words, and I'll explain what each one means. The three words, these big theological lessons, let's simplify for all of us, is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Let me see if I can break down these three words to you. The first one is justification. That is the theological term that we use when you receive Jesus as your Savior, you are justified. That God takes your sins and he puts his grace, his mercy, Jesus' forgiveness on it, and you are justified before him. Justification. The Bible says this in the book of Ephesians, that our gift of God is a free gift. You cannot boast. You cannot earn it. You can't do anything for it. When God gives us Jesus, it is just a free gift. When I moved here, the first week I was here, uh, my dear friend, your dear, dear friend, Joe Hess, presented me with a gift. And I walked into my first meeting, and he had it. He had a big smile on his face. I knew Joe this much, and I knew he had a heart this big. So if Joe's giving you a gift, you're thinking, this has got to be great. And so I walk in, this gift he gave me, I unwrapped it. And Joe Hess gave me my very first ever snow shovel. Now, understand, I've never lived in a snowy region before, so I never needed, never even knew what a snow shovel was. And he presented to me like he is giving me the best gift that he could ever, ever give me. And because it's Joe Hess, I'm thinking it must be the best gift that he's given me. And I smile. I said, Joe, thank you. You shouldn't have had. And I reached in my pocket to try to pay him. He said, no, 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 Keith, this is a gift. You can't pay for this. I'm like, well, can I come over to your house and help you do something to kind of pay? He goes, no, no, you can't earn this. He goes, it is a gift. And he handed me this snow shovel, and he said, is it a gift, a free gift for you? That's exactly what justification is. 
that when God gave us Jesus, he's going, you can't earn him. You can't do anything to work for it. It is my gift to you. And so in our lives, if you have a relationship with Jesus, that moment in time that you said, Jesus, my life is your life. You're my, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. That was the moment justification took place. It's a once and done deal right there. That's justification. But the second word that I want to teach you is sanctification. That is the process. When Paul says continue, he's talking about our sanctification. So at the moment you accept Jesus as your Savior, until you take your last breath, there is a process that you and I go through spiritually that we're every day trying to become more and more and more like Jesus. That is the sanctification process. I hope I'm not who I was yesterday in my, in my life with Jesus, but I hope I'm not who I'll be tomorrow in my life with Jesus because I'm continuing, I'm becoming, I'm working, I'm, I'm working at it, and you, you are as well. Let me go back to Joe's snow shovel. He, justification, he gave me the gift. But the sanctification is when I look at this gift and I'm holding going, this is the best gift ever, that gift won't do me that much good in my hands. The first, the first snowstorm is going to come, and I'm going to look at that gift, and I'm going to call Joe going, hey, Joe. He goes, no, no, it's your gift. I'm like, Joe, you gave me this. He goes, I know. I gave you. It was the best gift I could give you. Now, I'm like, well, Joe, what do I do? And he's going to say, go work at it. Okay, go out there and shovel snow. That gift of the snow shovel really does me the most good. Not me looking at it, admiring it, think I have a snow shovel. It does me the most good when I'm shoveling snow with it. That is what we call sanctification. I will continue shoveling snow and continue shoveling snow and continually shoveling, shoveling snow. Someone said if Joe really loved you, he would have bought you a snow blower, not a snow shovel. But he did not give me that, so I guess he doesn't love me that much. But are you with me? This means yes. So we have justification. I got the gift. Sanctification is the process to continue using the gift until the day there's no more snow. Now glorification. There will come a day that you and I take our last breath on this earth. And as a follower of Jesus, you will enter up into heaven and you will look and you will look at all that God has for you. And he will say, not only do I have this for you, you are everything you'll ever be right now. We're glorified state. The old has become new. We have new bodies. It's glorification. My snow shovel. I'm going to take you with me to heaven. And I'm going to get to heaven going, well, Joe gave it to me. I must have to keep using this. And God's going, you don't need that snow shovel here. Because we don't have snow here. We just have streets of gold right here. You're in the glorified heaven of, of all that there is for you. And you're at the perfect place. And you're the perfect being to reside in heaven forever. So we have justification, sanctification, and glorification. All three of those parts are part of our salvation. But when Paul is writing this mystery, this, 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 this stressful phrase that he uses here, continue, in your, continue to work out your salvation, continue, he's going, you're in the sanctification part. Would you look at somebody next to you going, you're not all that. But I pray to God you're better tomorrow. Okay, that's the sanctification process right there, that we are becoming more and more like Jesus. But here's a second truth I want to give you about salvation that Paul is bringing out in this phrase. And the second truth says this, salvation leads to a response to God. Salvation leads to a response to God. That's the reason Paul uses that phrase, which kind of, it feels disturbing until we understand it. Continue to work out your salvation. 
Several weeks ago, when we began this series, I gave you a memory verse that we're all supposed to be memorizing. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Now, let me just kind of pause here and say this. In a few weeks, the children, I've been learning this verse, we're going to bring them into church, and they're going to recite Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 through 9. And we're going to all look at them going, oh, that is so cute. That is so good that they're memorizing God's word. And I'm warning you right now. And then I'm going to have the children look at you from on this stage and say, now, children, the church wants to repeat and recite the verse to you. We will not be having cheat sheets up here, okay? You cannot be looking at your program or your bulletin. We're all supposed to be memorizing that verse. It will be very embarrassing if the children know these two verses and we don't. So I'm just warning you right now. But the second verse that we're memorizing from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 is verse 9. And it says this. Whatever, and this is Paul talking. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, he says this. Put it into practice. In other words, he's going work it out now where we get really confused and frustrated and concerned about this verse is you're like well hold on a second Keith. time out time out here a second i thought you said in justification it's a free gift now we have to work it notice it says work out your salvation not work for your salvation scripture never ever says we need to work for our salvation in fact there are so many people out there that are worn out christians because they've spent their whole life trying to work and please and make God happy about them. We can't make God any happier for the things we do than the moment we receive them in our heart. Because when God sees us, he sees us through his son, Jesus Christ, and all he sees is just forgiveness and goodness. Now, that doesn't take us off the hook. He wants us to work, but not work for the salvation, but to work out the salvation. That I read a quote this week, and I think it makes so much sense. It says this, Jesus loves you so much, he will accept you just as you are, but he loves you so much, he doesn't want, to, want you to stay where he found you. Let me read that one more time. Jesus loves you so much, he will accept you just as you are, but he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay where he found you. Because his desire is for us in the sanctification process to continue to work out our salvation and become more and more and more like him if you looked in the mirror this morning you locked no i'm kind of getting a little flabby i think i need to go to the gym and and start working out just kind of some muscles right put some muscles on here's what you need to understand you will not be putting muscles on you'll just be developing the muscles you already have so when you work out physically it is not finding something new it is just making more and bigger what you already have that's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. When we work out our salvation, it's not getting something new. We've already got Jesus. It's just working him out more and more and more in us. And so that's the second principle. Now here's the third principle that Paul is trying to help us understand in this short little phrase that can feel when we first read it so disconcerting. The second phrase is with fear, or the third phrase is with fear and trembling. And the principle that he wants us to get and understand, if you want to write in your bulletin, is salvation brings about an awareness of God. Salvation brings about an awareness of God. We read this fear and trembling, and our connotation, our thought is, the reason it's so hard to have a relationship with God is if you even get around him, it's like you're afraid he's like some supreme being that's got a lightning bolt up in heaven, and he's ready to strike you down if you do something wrong. Isn't that what it means with fear and trembling? That you walk around going, if I make a mistake, I'm in trouble. 
That's not the fear and trembling that he's talking about there. I shared with you when I first came that I have a little phobia, a little fear, and it's really with just animals. I just don't like animals. If I come to your house, you have a dog, I'll probably be okay. If you have a cat, we'll pray for you. But if you have anything else besides that, I just don't like animals. And so several years ago, my son went hunting, goose hunting, and they came home with some goose, they had sh- some geese they had shot. And so I thought to kind of build up my reputation because people knew I was kind of scared of animals, I thought I'm going to take a picture of holding this goose to kind of show people like, yeah, look, look at me, I'm a hunter, right? And so I wanted a nice little photo so I could put on social media to improve my image. Little did I know that my daughter, as we're trying to take this photo, she has a video. She's got the camera going, going the video on the, on, the, on the phone, and she's taking a video of the whole photograph taking session. Watch what it looked like. Wait, wait. You want to start off with a duck? Huh? You want to start off with a duck? Just grab it. I gave you the shortened Reader's Digest version. That went on for about three minutes. We never got a photograph of me holding this goose because I just fear and trembling. I cannot get around animals, dead or alive. I just can't do it. Now, we laugh at that, but here's what I'm afraid of. There are many of us that approach God the same way. Not that God's saying, would you grab hold of my neck and take a picture? He's not saying that. But we're wanting, he wants us to draw near to him. But there's something inside of us going, fear and trembling has me, keeps me from drawing close and more intimate with you. And what the Apostle Paul is writing here is, no, 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 you don't approach God that way. There needs to be an awareness of God. The fear and trembling is not fear, but is an awe of God. See, we can mistake and go too far this way, and we try to make God so much our buddy that we make him like us. God will never be like us. He's like us, but he's not one of us. God is holy. God is all-powerful. God is the creator of all things. When we approach God, we need to always remember he who he is and who we're not. That gives us the right perspective of God. And so that's the fear and trembling. In fact, I took a hike yesterday, not even a hike, a a walk in, in some friend's neighborhood. And I ran across a sign that I had never seen in my life. All my years of walking, I've never run across this sign. I actually hope I never run across it again. But this sign to me sums up what Paul is trying to say in this fear and trembling. A bear conflict. Avoid bear conflicts. Okay? I saw that sign and I wanted to run back to the house going, I'm not walking in that neighborhood. Okay? They got bears there. But here's what we're trying to convey or what's being trying to convey with this sign. The sign is not telling people don't go for walks. It's not telling people to take your walks with guns in your hands in case you see a bear. It's not saying Colorado's a bad place, move out now because we have bears. It's simply saying we have bears and just avoid the conflict. In other words, be aware of the bears. In fact, if they use Paul's terminology, I think the sign could say, Be aware with fear and trembling of the bears. Don't run away and don't walk. Just understand and be reverent. Be aware of what they are and live with them in that regard. And that's what Paul is trying to say here when he says live in fear and trembling. He's like, come near, but don't ever put yourself on the same page as God. Worship God, but don't ever try to become God. It's keeping him in that perspective of fear and trembling that we will understand and work out our salvation the way God intended us to. 
And so as you look at that verse, one that brings people so much consternation, when you understand what Paul was trying to say it to, at least here's what it does to me. It gives me greater joy. Because instead of like going, I need to stay away from that type of God, it brings me joy because I'm going, I want that type of God. I want that type of God that justified me because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son Jesus. But I want that type of God that he wants me to draw near to him in intimacy. But yet I also want that type of God that makes me want to be aware of him as well. And so it brings me joy. So that's what Paul was doing as he's writing this letter to the church of Philippi. He's just saying, I need you to give your perspective of God and salvation. One that you can continue to use as the foundation for all your joy. Whether it's finding joy in circumstances, finding joy in relationships, attitude, or the other things he'll mention as we work through the letter. And then he goes on to the next few verses. But here's what I need to let you know. As we look at verses 14 through 18, when Paul wrote this, I don't think specifically he was saying, and now find joy in this area. I think he had laid the foundation, but I want to present to you an area that I think we may struggle the most when it comes to finding joy. When I tell you what this one area of our lives is, you're like, oh yeah, trust me. Even if I'm not in there now, I've been there before, and it may be even more difficult than finding joy in relationships sometimes. Again, Paul was not writing specifically to this area that I'm about to point out and specify for you, but I think the principles that he lined out for us fit perfectly. So you're going, okay, what's the area? Okay, are you ready? Roll the drums. The area that I think that most people find it most difficult to find joy in is their work their J-O-B, their job. Because you deal with people that give you headaches, you deal with people that don't work hard, you have all these reasons. And here's what I found. So many people go to work, don't find joy in their work, their work can be so just demoralizing to them and just drain them so much. When they get home, they can't find joy in their attitude, they can't find joy in their relationships. So it's like the domino effect in so many other areas of our lives. And so while I want to read these verses to you and point out some very foundational things that I think can apply specifically to our job, to your work, to help find better joy. And you may be saying, well, I should have stayed home today because I'm retired. I believe this, that we all still work in some way. It may be a volunteer position. It may be something you're focused on. But the moment we quit having a purpose in life, and our purpose in life is actually our job and work in life. That God wants all of us, regardless of what age or stage we're in, to have a purpose, a job, a focus in life, whether paid or not paid. So I really do believe what Paul is saying here is appropriate for all of us, no matter where we are. As I look around the room, I see students in this room. Guess what your job is? School. Did you know, students, God wants you to find joy and even when you go to school? That is your job right now, this season of life you're in. So let me read verses 14 through 18 to you, and we'll use our last minutes, and I want to just give you some very practical take-home things that we can pull from this to find joy in our jobs. So here's what Paul said. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and a warped and a crooked generation. And then he went on to say, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad. And he says this, and I will rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So let me give you four just 
practical take-home, how do I find joy in my life principles from Paul's word right there. Here's the first one. If you want to find joy at your work, remember, work is not defined on what you get paid. Your work is your purpose, your calling. If you want to find joy in that, stop complaining about people and decisions at work. Stop complaining about people and decisions at work. Paul put it this way. He said, I need you to do everything without grumbling. Here's what I'm learning. The opposite of grumbling is gratitude. If we would go to our place of work and we would show more gratitude for that place of work and the people we work with and the decisions they made and all that goes on there, as opposed to grumbling, we would find more joy. I love the way the um, Ephesians, um, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 is written in the message. And here's what it says. Do everything readily and cheerfully. Let me ask you a question. If you went to your place of work, your job tomorrow, whatever it is, and you did everything more cheerfully and more readily, how much more joy do you think you'll find? I think a lot. As opposed to going there and fussing and grumbling and complaining about all the people you work with and all the decisions that are made. God says you need to rearrange your perspective. And when you rearrange your perspective, it will rearrange your attitude. And when you rearrange your attitude, it will bring you more joy at the job. And then he goes on to say this. He says not only do everything without grumbling, he says do everything without arguing. Which leads us to our second principle, take-home principle. And that principle is look for opportunities at work or look for opportunities to create unity and peace at work. Look for opportunities to create unity and peace at work. Here, here's what I know from personal, personal experience. When a decision is made at, job, at the work that I don't like, I will fuss and I will complain and I will go find somebody that will agree with me. I never go fuss and complain with somebody that's going to disagree with me because they might tell me I'm wrong. And you know why I go to somebody that will agree with me? Because I am secretly and even subconsciously trying to build my team. If I can get two or three or four people that agree with me in my grumbling, in my complaining, in my opinions, and everything else, I will feel better and I'll have strength. And that way, when the management or supervisors make another choice or decision that I don't agree with, I can gather my little team and we can be a force. Now, we may never be a force as far as having them try to change the decisions, but we can sure be a force in the break room. We can sure be a force when we go to lunch and talk about how just ridiculous and even just ignorant uh, management is. And here's what I know. When that happens, we create a very divisive environment. And what I see that Paul says there, he says, do everything without arguing. What does arguing do? Creates division. It gets my side. If you don't have two sides, you can't argue. I've never argued with my wife when she agrees with me. I only argue with her when she disagrees with me and she's on the other side. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you keep reading there, as we read, here's what he says. If we will do everything without arguing and grumbling, this is what the Apostle Paul says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Here's what we have to understand to really get what Paul is saying here. God created every one of us for a purpose. And where we work, whether it's paid or unpaid, that is part of the purpose that God created us for. He did not create us for that purpose to make a big paycheck. That's one of the benefits of working there. But the purpose that God planted you where you work 
is to shine his light and be his witness in that environment. But when we're grumbling, when we're arguing, when we're divisive, when we kind of pull our teams together and we're against management and people see that, we are not being a very light. We're not shining the light of Jesus on our, on our workforce. And we're missing the very reason God placed us there. The best thing that we can do is wake up in the morning and look in the mirror going, when I go to, go to work today, God, God is moving me and placing me in my work to be a witness for him, a light for him. We are to be like shining stars in the workforce. Paul goes on to say this. Let me give you a third practical take-home that you can do when it comes to finding joy in your job. He says this, allow Scripture to guide your work. He put it, Paul wrote it a different way. He said, hold firmly to the word of life, but we're allowing Scripture to guide our work. And you're going, wait, hang on a second, Keith. You don't know where I work, okay? If I put a Bible on my desk, I'm going to get in trouble. If I opened a Bible and tried to read to somebody, I'd be sent home, and I may be put without pay. They don't bring the Bible. You can't bring that into work. They're going to say that's separated from your work. Paul is not saying bring a book to work. He's saying hold firm to the word of life. He's saying what's in you, you have to hold firm. And when we hold firm to what's in us, it will be reflection what comes out of us. And our reactions to people and our responses to people, that is where we're holding firm to the word of life. In fact, I love in Psalms, it says this, Scripture is to be a lamp unto our feet. I'm afraid this, most of us take the thoughts and, the, and what the Scripture says, and it's a lamp that we leave on our dresser before we ever leave our house to go to work. I've, I've learned this in my life. People look at life, and they, they consider it like a, a pie. And so here's a, like a cherry pie. Like this piece of pie is my recreational, my, 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 my entertainment life. This piece of cherry pie is my family life. The next piece of pie is my financial life. The next piece of pie is my spiritual life. The next piece of pie is my work life. And we try to do life just like a piece of pie. If I go to work, I take the pie out, the, the, the one piece for the work. But I don't, convince, I don't mix spiritual piece of pie with work piece of pie. You with me? Now, that may work in most of life, kind of segmenting life like that. But when we look at our spiritual life as a piece of pie just along with the others, it doesn't work. Because God never intended our spiritual life just to be a piece of our life. It's all of our life. So here's the way I like to look at it. Life is like a pie, a cherry pie. But the spiritual part of our life is not a piece of pie. It's all the cherries in the pie. So if I take my entertainment part of my life, my spiritual life should still be in there. That's the cherries that fill it. If I take my family life and I take a piece of slice of that, I still have Jesus right in the middle of it because it's all the cherries in it. When I go to work, I don't put Jesus on the shelf or put the lamp on the dresser because Jesus are the, is the cherries in my work life. Does that make sense? And so when we go to work, Jesus needs to be all there with it. Now, I'm not advocating that you need to go bang and fist and beat people up in the name of Jesus. Here's what I do think. You need to love them in the name of Jesus. You need to respond to them, that you need to react to them. And so that third principle is that we need to allow Scripture to guide you at work. Can I give you a great Scripture to use at work? We're memorizing it. Or maybe I should say this. You're supposed to be memorizing it. Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is good, what is lovely, think on these things. I promise you, if we took that to heart, that would change our perspective of work. And here's the last one I wrap up with. 
the, the practical take home that Paul gives us in these verses, actually it's not in the verses I read to you, it's found in verses 19 through 30. We're not going to read it today because there's so many verses, I encourage you to go home and read it. But the principle is this, to prioritize people at work. Prioritize people at work. Here's what you'll find as you read verses 19 through 30. Paul really talks about two of his friends. He talks about Timothy, and he also talks about Epra, but I never can say it, his other friend Epi. We'll just call him Epaphroditus, okay? And he's his two friends. But as you read 19 through 30, you can tell that there's a relationship there that Paul honors them. Paul lifts them up. Paul even sacrifices for them. Paul puts them ahead of themselves. He prioritizes them as people. I wonder this. If we went to our work, whether it's vocational paid, it's volunteer, whatever your purpose, whatever your work is, if we went to our work and we prioritized people, how would that change the environment? Somehow I think if I went to work and made you more important than me, that would change everything. And Paul's going, you want to find joy in your life? Put others before yourself. Isn't that what Jesus did? That's what we've learned in the first two chapters so far, that Jesus became a servant, a servant even unto death. And so we need to prioritize people. I'm reminded of a story that a, a mom was introducing her little son to piano. He was about six years old, and she had dreamed of him becoming this great pianist as he grew and matured, and so she wanted to inspire him. And the way she inspired him, there was this master pianist coming um, to, to town in a concert, a musical concert. And so she bought two tickets, front row tickets to take her son. And she was just hoping as her son sat on that front row and watched him just play away, it would inspire him in his own journey. And so the day of the concert came, they went in, sat down in the front row. It was still a few minutes before the concert was to start. And the mom looked over, she saw a friend of hers about a row over. So she looked at her son and said, stay here, the concert's about to start. I'm going to talk to my friend. I'll be right back. And so she goes over and she starts talking to her friend. And as she comes back to her shock, her son is not there. And she began looking everywhere for him. About the time that she's about to really panic, all of a sudden the lights in the auditorium went down. The curtains opened and it was time to start the concert. What she didn't know while she was talking to her friend, her little boy went wandering off. He couldn't read. He saw a door. If he could have read, he would have saw the sign on the door said, no admittance, staff only. But he opened the door and he went in there. As he kept wandering around the hallways trying to find out where this thing led, as his mom was talking to her friend, he ends up on the stage. The stage that had this one grand piano. He's not really realizing where he's at because at that moment in time, the curtain was still drawn. So he goes over. He's been learning piano. So he goes and sits down at the piano, and he just sits there for a second. About the time he starts to play his only, only song he knew, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, that's when the curtains opened up. So you can imagine the mom's shock. Relief she found him, but horrified because her son's on the stage. The whole entire auditorium, they don't know how to respond. They had paid good money to see this master pianist lead them in this concert. And it's a six-year-old boy up there. And as he begins to play the first note, and the crowd is looking at him, the master pianist sees what's going on. And the story says that he walked up to the little boy and just stood behind him. And he put one arm on this side and just whispered in his ear, just keep on playing. Keep on doing it. And as the little boy just punt and pecked, he began adding all the layers of musicality to it. And then he put his other arm around this side of the little boy, and he said, 
keep on, keep on. And all of a sudden, the pianist is playing this magnificent piece of music. And the little boy is just playing twinkle, twinkle, little tar. The master's adding everything he had to it. And the whole time, he just kept saying, keep on, keep on. Church, here's what I believe God is saying to us. He's wrapping his arms around us because sometimes when it comes to our work and finding joy, we feel as inadequate as a little boy trying to play twinkle, twinkle, little star. And God says, if you'll keep your eyes on me and you keep working out your salvation at the job, at your work, with fear and trembling, and he says, I will, lay layer, I will place layers and layers of my beauty around your life. And we will make a masterpiece that the world will look and say, and it is good. We can find joy at our job. And not only can we find joy, God desires us to find joy. Let me take it one step further. We can, God desires, but God expects us to find joy at our job. Because when we don't find joy at our job, we will dim the light of the one who gave us the job. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. And I am, I, I, I humbly, I, I don't ever want to become a broken record, God, but thank you for your word. And about those times I find those areas of my life that I just want to kind of do my way, God, you come shine your light on my way and you show me there's a better way. And it's your way. And so I think I can confess on all, for all of us that there's too many times that we've not found joy in our jobs. And we've dimmed the light to you. So today, Jesus, thank you for showing us. Now will you help us leave this place and work it out for your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen.